I want to talk tonight about one of the most famous stories in the in the in the Pali Canon in the uh, early Buddhist texts, and it's just kind of came to me the other day, and I I I wanted yeah I thought it's a it's a good one, um, and it's a story of Kisa Gotami. It's the name of a woman, excuse me. And her story is included in the Terigata, which is the uh, part of the Pali Canon, um, which is the text of early Buddhism. And it's the Terigata is the poems of the elder nun. So it's a whole series of poems that are attributed to uh, women who were um, ordained in the time of the Buddha, around the time of the Buddha, and there are their stories. And so... Hers is really fa fairly famous, and so I just wanted to tell this story, and then um, a couple of reflections came up for me around it as I was thinking about this this week. And Kisugatami was a woman who was born in, or she was born into a poor family, and she was very, very thin, and so they called her Skinny Gotami, and that's what Kisugatami means, skinny. And she was married, and to uh, and her husband's family um, kind of also made fun of her because she was so poor, and uh, they berated her because of this poverty. And when she had a baby, she had a son, and so all of a sudden her respect level uh, uh, came up because she was the mother of a, a male child, and that's how it works in a lot of societies. And uh, her child, when he was about two, I'm not sure what happened, but he died. And two things happened to her. She was so struck with grief, A, for the loss of her child, and B, there was this dread of going back to being berated and abused because of, of her, her background, her poverty. And she just was not able to accept the death of her child. And what she did, she ran from, um, she went from house to house carrying her dead child on her hip, asking people to give her medicine to help him recover. And it says, under the influence of her sorrow to the point of madness, she took the dead corpse on her hip and wandered in the city from the door of one house to another, pleading, give medicine to me for my son. People reviled her, saying, what good is medicine? She did not grasp what they were saying. She, she, she could not accept the reality of what happened, and she just was caught in this web of, of delusion, denial. And somebody finally took pity on her and suggested she go see the Buddha who was um, living outside the city in a grove. Um, and so she went out to see him, and she asked him, will you give me medicine to heal my son? And he said, sure, but what I want you to do is go to the house, go back to town, and go back to the houses and ask someone for a mustard seed. But you have to bring me a mustard seed um, from the house where no one has died. And she said, okay. So she went back. Um, yeah, he said, um, go into the city, and whatever house has never before experienced any death, take from them a mustard seed. So she went from house to house asking this question, do you have a mustard seed? Has anyone died here? And everyone said, who is able to count how many have died here? 
Obviously, people have died because that's the way it is. She went to several houses, and then she finally had that awakening, that realization that her loss was a universal loss, and it happened to everyone. And at that moment, she was able to finally, the, the reality of the situation of this universal loss, that this universal experience of death um, happened to her, and it finally broke through. Um, her delusion, her denial, and she took her son to the charnel ground. And then she went back to the Buddha, and she said, because I now see that my own sorrow is part of the sorrow of all people, and that the death of our loved ones is part of the pattern of life for everyone, that is the medicine I needed, and that is what you have helped me understand. So that's what she said to the Buddha, and she eventually ordained as a nun and became an arhat, became enlightened. And the story says that she eventually moved beyond grief and into the deathless, which is this place that is free from attachment. It's the, it's the place where we have no more clinging, no more craving, no more anything. <clears throat> so what came up for me, one of the points that came up for me when I was thinking about this story is the teaching in, in Buddhist scriptures that we get to a place beyond attachment, beyond grief beyond these experiences of the human condition because we have this deep penetrating wisdom that sees the futility of, of holding on to things. In fact, when the Buddha was about to die, um, Ananda, his, his attendant, was like freaking out, like, you can't leave us, you can't leave us. And the Buddha said, haven't I taught you anything? Haven't you learned anything? That things that are subject to impermanence, which is everything, things that, what does he says, um, it's impossible that to forbid anything that is subject to disintegration to keep it from disintegrating. It's impossible. Um, and Buddha was a human being, so he, this, this was true for him. Um, and another time, Ananda's um, best friend, Sariputta, another monk, passed away, died, and the Buddha again said, you can get behind this. It's painful. It's like cutting off a branch of, from a large tree, but recognizing that we only have ourselves and our actions. And so this is where we're heading. However, um, I don't think any of us, I haven't met anyone who is enlightened to that degree that does not feel this pain, that does not feel the grief of, of, of loss. Um, I understand it intellectually, but I'm not there, and I don't know anyone who is. And so what really comes up for me in this teaching, in this story, is how we are often so blinded by our emotions, and often the difficult ones, that we'll do whatever we can to deny the reality of them. Whatever we can. I mean, Kisa Gotami was so overcome with grief that her denial was so extreme, she thought she could fix it. How many, how many times do we get stuck in the, I can fix this, I can fix this, it's not happening, it's not happening. No, 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 it's not happening. I can, I can take care of this. Um, it's only when she finally had that awareness, that acceptance that this loss was inevitable and part of, part of the cycle of life um, that she was able to let go. You know, and this is, this is the first noble truth. There is loss. There is suffering. There is, the, you know, everything is impermanent. Birth, death, it's all, it's all um, um, 
It's going to happen to everyone. It's inescapable. As much as we try and manipulate it, as much as we try and do things, and I, ha- I, I saw this article this last week as one of those pop-ups that came when I got onto my browser, and um, you might be interested in this, and it was about walking 15 minutes a day, um, how, how ha- walking 15 minutes a day is healthy. And in the article, it said that if you walk 15 minutes a day, you reduce your chance of mortality by 22%. So I know the medical professionals who, you know, put this together did not think that you're not going to die, obviously, but they still couch it in these terms. And if we're not paying attention, we're going to go, it, it kind of internalizes, oh, if I walk 15 minutes a day, then I'm not going to get sick. And then when you get sick, it's like, but I walked 15 minutes a day. How can this happen? I've, I've met people later in their lives, in their 70s and 80s, who start becoming ill and go, how can this happen? I was good. I did this. I did this. I did this. Because we're in so, de- so much denial. We're attached to ourselves. We're atta- whatever it is we're attached to. So I thought I'd throw in there because that was pretty extraordinary. When I read that, I just kind of went, wow. Um, we have developed, you know, really high-level coping mechanisms for dealing with reality. Um, you know, and so even if we're not enlightened, we still can move towards this willingness to let go of denial and let go of delusion. You know, we have to let go of needing everything to be the way we want it to be to think we're okay. And that was kind of some of the instruction of uh, this evening's meditation. Relax, observe, and allow the experience to be what it is. No fixing necessary. Even when it's uncomfortable, can you be with the discomfort? That's how we move towards this acceptance of reality. Not acceptance in a way that we go, oh, this is a shitty situation. I'm just going to let it be. It's not that, that floor mat kind of thing, but it's just the acknowledgement of the situation of the moment, how the situation is painful. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of anger, whatever it is. There's a lot of joy. I always want to throw that in there because people sometimes have a difficulty experiencing the pleasant as well. Um, in this, um, you know, in this practice, for me, in this practice of living with an undefended heart, we have to be willing to be with each experience. That's a, that's a definition of equanimity, the willingness to be intimate with our deepest experience without preference, without preference for it to be something else. Um, the thing is that we may not even realize um, how we do these things, how we distort reality, how we turn away from experiencing the really depth of our uh, pain or our grief uh, or our sadness. Um, when I, I tell my a little bit of my what happened to me in my experience, my father died when I was five, and there was no acknowledgement of it other than he was here one day and he was gone the next day. And so there was no, um, no... There was no talk about it. There was no dealing with it. It was just like, boop, gone. And so um, 
it took me 40 years to touch that loss, to begin to be able to touch that loss. I didn't know what it was. Um, and it and it's in hindsight, only in hindsight do I realize that my life was turned upside down. You know, it was turned upside down, but I didn't, I didn't know it intellectually. Five-year-olds don't, it's so difficult to comprehend that stuff. Um, and so it took me a really long time of this stuff, denying this stuff that was bubbling up. It took me to addiction. It took me to all kinds of things to not have to feel. I would do anything not to feel. And it was finally when I sat on the cushion and I was taught to be with what's there that I was able to touch that pain. I cried for a really long time connecting with that grief. I mean, you know, first you're like embarrassed. I'm like, really? At my age? But, you know, you let go of that, that judgment too there's judgment along with it and was able to touch it and 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 acknowledge that we all have these experiences that was around the same time I was diagnosed with the human condition and I was mortified I was mortified but it hadn't that that unwillingness to touch pain and grief had me do all kinds of crazy things that I'm not going to get into but it's just how we cope our habits our conditioning, our coping mechanisms that we may not even consciously develop. There's a there's a Zen monk, Claude Anchin Thomas. He taught it against the stream a couple of times. He's out of Connecticut. He's a Vietnam veteran. He's an American who's fought in Vietnam. He said, I read his autobiography. It's called At Hell's Gate. Really good. He was screwed up before Vietnam, and then Vietnam really screwed him up. And he came home, and he, was, uh, he got married, and he had a child. He and his wife had a child. And when the baby was really little, he could not stand the crying, and he just left. He didn't know why he left his wife and child. He just took off. And it was years later when he, he met Thich Nhat Hanh, who he thought it was really ironic that this he had spent all this time in Vietnam and then he you know being taught to kill Vietnamese and then his kind of the person who was able to teach him to um, connect with his humanity was a Vietnamese monk. Um, he realized that there was a lot of stuff he had stuffed down. Um, things he had done in Vietnam, experiences he had had, and there were children crying, and he, the, hearing his baby cry brought all that up. His inability to touch that had him just take off. So that's, a, again, kind of an extreme example, but we all have those things. So this invitation of this practice is to stop. Relax. Learn to be with the challenges that are here. Stop the manipulation. Stop the running. Stop the changing. The fixing. There's a freedom in being able to touch because we don't have to manipulate and hide and run and, and do all those things. Um, there's a freedom in letting go of the fighting and dropping the walls. I think I was more afraid of touching it than the actual experience. You know, the, it's never as bad as we think it's going to be. It's always different. The experience is always different. Um, when we turn towards our grief and our loss and touch it with tenderness rather than aversion, we can come into compassion. We make space for it. 
You know, instead of hiding it in a dark corner, we bring, we bring some space in. We have spaciousness in our bodies as well. There's place to breathe. You know, and as we touch our own compassion, there's uh, an ability to be compassionate for with others as well. You know, we have we're we're able to be empathetic and, and compassionate and begin to see this commonality of the human experience that we all have this grief, this loss. There's not a single house in my town, in my country, that hasn't experienced loss in this world. Not a single one. You know, and Roshi Joan Halifax, who is this wonderful, wonderful teacher, she has done a lot of work with death and dying. She said, to deny grief is to rob ourselves of the heavy stones that will eventually be the ballast for the two great accumulations of wisdom and compassion. So seeing clearly the human condition, seeing clearly how we move through this world, having that clarity that things do change, things are impermanent, and, and the clarity that, and the wisdom and the compassion. This, they, they're often called the two wings of awakening, wisdom and compassion. You need both. You can't just be a, a large brain intellectual walking around figuring everything out. Um, and the compassion needs to be um, coupled with that clarity, that discernment. So it's not what Pema Chodron calls idiot compassion, where we're just like, oh, whatever you want. That gets into codependence and enabling. So there's this, this clarity. Um, and that, that brings me to the other part of my reflection on this story is that we're not alone in this. Just as Kisa Gatami saw the universality of her experience, we don't have to do this alone. We, we, um, we get to practice or we get to be with other people. There's the, the, the beauty of the Sangha. There's another, another story of Kisa Gatami in the Terigata, and, and that talks about friendship. And um, the Buddha said, the Buddha commended having good friends for anyone anywhere in the universe. That's, I think, everyone. By keeping company with good friends, even a fool becomes wise. Keep company with good people. Wisdom increases for those who do. By keeping company with good people, one is freed from every suffering. And there's another very famous sutta where Ananda, the Buddha's um, attendant, was saying that friendship is half the spiritual life. And the Buddha said, no, Ananda, friendship companionship, camaraderie is all of the spiritual life and enables us to walk this eightfold path, enables us to walk this path away from suffering towards freedom, enables us to show up in the world and be with everything. You know, when we go through stuff, we don't have to do it alone. I remember somebody the other day was sharing that, you know, when his, his he had a, a, a very... Um, painful experience a couple of years ago and he was able to get through it with some people who were there to support him just as we support others we allow ourselves to be supported by others so building up this community um what did i think yeah so um it's incredibly important to recognize that we're not alone in this that is um 
that makes it easier to deal with this grief and so that we can share and empathize and have compassion. So the work is necessary. Um, so I think that there's this other thing that I, Roshi Joan wrote that I want to read because it's really beautiful. Um, she has a book. I have, it's, this is from that book. It's called Being with Dying. And she said, grief can call us into an experience of raw immediacy that is often devastating. Grieving, we can learn that suffering is not transformed by someone telling us how to do it. We have to do the work ourselves. Yet a friend can bear witness and shine light into the darkness of our suffering. And in this way, help us to learn to swim in the water waters of sorrow. I think that's a really beautiful thing that we have to do this. We, ha we can't go around it. There's no, you know, people sometimes come to practice or come to some kind of spiritual practice trying to, you know, not feel and beat their experience over the head with practice. Um, and that's not how it works. Practice helps us be with the grief. Um, to get through those stages of denial and anger and, and fighting and get to the point of acceptance and being with and recognition. But we don't do it alone. Friends can bear witness. That's why I listened to Tarana Burke and she said, that's what me too was. I may not have your experience, but me, I can bear witness to what you are going through. Really important to recognize and to offer generosity and receive generosity. So the important questions are to um, ask us how do we how do we go through this? Um, you know, where are we? What gets in the way? I always um, I always ask that question if we struggle or if there's um, um, a difficulty moving through this or moving towards it. What is it that gets in the way? That's always helpful. Not that we're bad people or we're, we're we incapable, but there's usually something that gets in the way. What stories are there? We get to learn to recognize our stories. What old beliefs do we have that keep us um, trapped in these stories? Mine was dismissive. I'm, I'm good. I got this. Yeah, that happened. I got it. It doesn't impact me. I'm good. You know, the denial of my humanity. That was my story. The fear of um, needing help. The fear of feeling. I don't want to feel. It's too messy. What can I do not to feel? Um, so recognizing these stories in ourselves. And not that they're bad, but, rec but acknowledging that's how we needed to get through what life has put in our way, what our experiences have been. Um, we learned um, practice sitting, being with, uh, connection with others. Skillful means also is important. Skillful means means taking care of ourselves um, and not thinking we have to bear down all the time. Sometimes it means taking a break. Sometimes it means doing loving-kindness practice for ourselves, compassion practice. Sometimes it just means going for a walk, going to the movies, eating uh, um, some popcorn and apple pie. 
whatever, whatever. Sometimes, you know, which it's really beginning to develop a relationship with ourselves that we can trust and know, you know what, I can push a little further here. I need to step back a little bit. I need to take some time off from this work because it's really um, challenging work. And it's not something that we get overnight. You know, this is a practice of a lifetime. I'm still getting to places that are, you know, have been hidden because uh, I'm not dead yet. So I still got our ways to go. And, you know, in the, in the, um, in the stories they tell about uh, the Buddha's prior lives, these are a little bit later stories, they say he lived, I don't know, eons and eons and eons, even multiple eons. And, you know, eons are a long time. So he lived multiple eons, and each of those lifetimes, he was working on different parts of this, working on patience and loving kindness and compassion and wisdom and effort and determination. Um, so that just means it takes a minute or a couple of minutes. We want it now. And so my invitation is to really um, allow yourself to touch the hard, the difficult, the scary bits. Gently, slowly, and with the support of wise friends, people you trust. You don't have to have a whole boatload of them. There can just be a couple who you trust and, and will walk this path with you, holding your hand. You know, there's that, there's that, um, there's that poem, The Invitation. Um, I can't remember the, uh, I think her, um, st- mountain her name she's got mountain in her name the author but it's about will you um you know something about cry in the middle of the night I don't care who you are will you be real you know that's that's kind of the bottom line of it and that's what this is about it's about being real it's about touching touching our humanity and being open to to share our humanity with others and have them share it with us so that's my thoughts on this, um, this story, and I really appreciate you being here, and thank you so much for your kind attention, and I hope it will be of some benefit. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.